The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Luke, Luke chapter 2. It's been a little while since I have have preached, and so uh, looking forward to it today. Uh, I have a question. Do you like my Christmas shirt? See, the good thing about this Christmas shirt is once Christmas is over, I figure I have a future selling paper towels at the grocery store <laughs> as the brawny man. So anyway, um, but Luke 2, uh, you know, this, this time of year, we, we hear all sorts of things about what Christmas is really about. You watch TV, you watch um, that God-forsaken Hallmark Channel, you know, and uh, and all the movies and all the songs, and you hear over and over people who are not speaking from uh, the perspective of Scripture give their opinion about what Christmas is all about. And you'll hear things like, well, it's about getting together with family. And that sounds really sweet and really nice, but it's really a long way from the truth. You hear things like, well, you know, it's about the food. You know, it's about the food. And and my wife started baking a, a couple days ago, and The thing about this Christmas shirt, too, is I was afraid it wouldn't fit this morning because of the baking that's going on in my house. Um, You know, you hear things about Santa and the gifts and shopping, and uh, how many times have you heard Woodruff Road in a derogatory context, you know? Um, And the reality is none of those things, while they're a part of the way that our culture celebrates this holiday, it really is not at all what the Bible teaches us what Christmas is really about. In some ways, I feel a little bit like Charlie Brown this morning when Charlie Brown is the director of this play or pageant that they're going to put on, and he's trying to get everybody to actually follow the directions, and everybody seems to have their own idea of what Christmas is all about. And Charlie Brown, in a moment of exasperation, yells out in only the way that Charlie Brown could, and he said, isn't there anyone who can tell us what Christmas is really about? And Linus steps forward with his blanket, and he says, well, I can, Charlie Brown. And so in some ways, I want to be a little like Linus this morning, minus the blanket, and I want to shed some much-needed clarity to the topic of Christmas. So let's look, if you will, to Luke chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered, This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. It all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. This morning, I want to look at these verses, and particularly from verse 8 forward, and I want to ask the question, I want to deal with this issue of why did Jesus come? This is where the clarity of Christmas will, 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 uh, will, will become uh, most evident, is why did Jesus come? And then the second half, or, the, or the, the latter part of the sermon this morning, I simply want to ask the question, then how should we respond? Why did Jesus come, and how should we respond? So, First, why was Jesus born? Three reasons. Number one, to show us who God was, to show us God's glory. In, in verse 9, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the reality is, these shepherds were already surrounded by God's glory. They just had either ignored it or suppressed it. And the Bible teaches that that. God's creation reveals his glory to us. I want you to imagine the scene, if you will. These shepherds, a bunch of men out in a field at night, stars in the sky. You can hear all the insects. You can hear the sheep that they're they're responsible for uh, moving around inside this makeshift pen. And they're surrounded by God's glory. They hear it all. They, They hear every snap of a twig, could be a predator. They don't really know they're, what they're there for. They're surrounded by God's glory. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, that for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. See, the reality is that before Jesus ever was born, God had already begun to show us himself. We already knew that there was a God because we look around at creation. But the reality is that that in itself, is it only serves to condemn us. Because what we do with that creation that is meant to point us to God is we look at that creation in our humanity and we deny the existence of God. We look at those things and we say, no, 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 science is behind that. And we explain that away and we have suppressed the truth that was meant to point us to God. Now, in and of that, that in in itself, God could rightly bring condemnation on us. The Bible there in Romans chapter 1 tells us that because we have seen God's glory in creation but suppressed it, that we are without excuse. God could have left us there. He didn't have to give us anything else. But in the same way that a loving parent goes over vocabulary words with their child, God keeps giving us more. And the more that God gave to us was his son. God gave us his son. Jesus was born to show us 
God. And I want to give you three examples how, how we see throughout the Bible of God, Jesus showing us God. The first is a single passage in Hebrews chapter, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Bible there says that in these last days that God has spoken to us by His Son. And then listen to the words that they're used. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Now, let me just give you an illustration of this. We know there is a sun somewhere out in the sky that warms our planet, that gives light that that we couldn't live without. But the only reason we know there is a sun out there is because we experience the rays of that sun on a daily basis. Those rays have traveled 93 million miles to, to come to us, to, to warm us, to help with vegetation and all those things. We know there is a sun out there, but we don't experience the sun necessarily up close and personal. We experience the rays which points us to the sun. And what I would illustrate for you is that Jesus, like those rays, has traveled all the way from heaven to point us to the fact that there is a God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Example number two of of how Jesus shows us God is uh, some of the interaction with his disciples. When Jesus was in conversation with his disciples and he was telling them, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you, it was Thomas who looked at Jesus and said, Lord, we don't don't know where you're going. How, How should we know the way? And Jesus' response to them is clear. He said, Thomas, I am the way. He said, Thomas, I am the way. And if you'd known me, you have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus there is making a a claim that he is God himself, that if you've seen him, you've seen God. And you would think, well, that's, I wouldn't say another word if I were a disciple. Thomas doesn't, but Philip speaks up. And Philip, Jesus has just said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip, like so many times the disciples did, Philip speaks up and says, well, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough. And it's this ridiculous statement. And Jesus doesn't get exasperated with him, but he simply says to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Example number three, when Jesus was on earth and and doing his earthly ministry and, and he went in and he healed the paralyzed man, the Pharisees became indignant at what he was doing. Because in the middle of healing this, this um, paralyzed man, before he actually heals him, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees become indignant. They're, they're not speaking out at this moment, but in their minds, they have this thought, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, being God, perceived their thoughts, knew what they were thinking, And and he said these words to them, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus' point is, 
it would be a whole lot easier for me in this moment to simply say your sins are forgiven because you wouldn't really know whether they were or were not. I could be making a false claim in this, but so that you will understand that I have this authority, I'm going to do the harder of the two. And he says to the man, get up and walk. And because the man who'd been paralyzed for all of his life stands up and walks away, he points to the fact that he is God. Here's the reality for us. Christmas reminds us that we don't have to wonder about God. We don't have to wonder what God is like because Jesus came to show us God's glory. We, we don't follow an un, the unverified teachings of a man like Joseph Smith who claimed to, to have revelation given to him on golden plates. We don't wait and wonder if one day we'll be accepted into paradise based on whatever the mood of Allah is that day. We don't face unending an, an reincarnations of a religion of karma. We, we don't toil our lives away hoping that somehow we'll win God over. We don't have to do any of that. This is the message of Christmas, that we don't have to wonder about God or what He expects of us or what He is like because God doesn't expect us to get to Him. God came to us. The second reason that Jesus was born not only was to show us God's glory, but secondly, to live among men. Verses 8 through 10, verses 8 in particular, in the same region, there were shepherds. Now, in this day, if you wanted people to believe your story, the last people that you would reveal it to would be shepherds. This is, this is one of the proofs that we know that, that the Bible is actually accurate because if people were making this up, there's no way they'd start with shepherds. Shepherds in this day were, weren't well thought of at all. They were uneducated and unskilled. The job of shepherding was a job that you gave to children. You think about David, if you go back to the Old Testament, and his brothers are out to war, and they're, they're sitting on the sidelines, and Goliath is taunting the army of Israel. And where's David? David is in the field watching sheep until his father says, go and see how they are. And David, as a child, leaves off from watching the sheep and goes, and, and, and you know the rest of the story there with David and Goliath. But this is a job in these times that was given to children. And if you were in adulthood still working as a shepherd, it spoke of you. It, you know, you, you, you hadn't really moved on in life. You were kind of stuck in this stationary position. Sheep required constant care. You had to care for sheep 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which meant that shepherds, from a religious standpoint, could never keep the ceremonial laws. They could never keep the Sabbath. And so what this meant was that, that not only were they seen as these sort of lowlifes who never really had any motivation or gumption in life, but it, from a religious standpoint, they were always unclean and always on the outs. They never could actually fulfill what was supposedly required of them, right? And so they were ceremonially unclean, not just spiritually or ceremonially unclean, they were also just unclean to begin with. They were physically unclean. I mean, you think about it, if the only people you're ever around are a bunch of guys who are just like you out on a field watching sheep, you're constantly cleaning up after sheep and taking care of sheep, there's no real pressure on you to actually bathe or wash your hands or any of those things, right? And so they were just kind of unkept, not the most hygienic guys in the world. 
But they were also known as untrustworthy. They were known as liars and thieves. In fact, in this day, shepherds' testimony wasn't permissible in court because they just weren't believable people and were known as, as unreliable and unsavory, shady characters. Nevertheless, God chooses to reveal the birth of His Son to these shepherds. There's an obvious question here is why? Why would God do this? Why would He, why would he start there? Why does He start with these guys? Why doesn't He go to the, to the best people of the day? Why doesn't He look at those who are, who are man, they are killing the Sabbath, man. They are, they are just knocking it out of the park. Why doesn't He go there? Because these are the very types of people that Jesus comes to save. Jesus comes here because these are, this is, he models this all through his earthly ministry. These are the types of people that he has come for. You think about who his disciples were. His disciples were a bunch of fishermen. I mean, any fishermen in the room? You're in good company, right? There's an IRS agent in the bunch. He's a tax collector, right? This is who Jesus comes to save. One of the main reasons why people didn't like Jesus or the religious people didn't like him is because he was always hanging out with sinners. They probably would have received him more if he wasn't hanging out with the wrong crowd. One day when the people are pressing in and there's some children there and, and the crowd is, is really kind of, is, is pretty thick and pretty heavy, his disciples assume that he can't be bothered with children. But Jesus said, no, no, no. Let the children come to me. One day when there's a woman who's been caught in the act of adultery and she's brought before Jesus by those who have caught her and they're about to stone her and take her life, Jesus kneels in the dirt and he begins to write there. and We don't know what he's written, but he turns to the crowd and he says, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. See, all through his ministry, Jesus displayed that it was ordinary, imperfect people whom he was coming for. He made this clear when he stood up and, and he read in the synagogue. And from Luke 4, we get the story there. He read, the Spirit of God is, is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to who? To the wealthy, to the upper crust, now he sent me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Nowhere is the, the fact that Jesus came to dwell or live among men made more clear than in his birth. I mean, if... if We've, we've had several in the last uh, couple of years uh, in our congregation that have had babies. Um, very few of you, when you were planning out, hey, what, what's our plan going to be? Uh, very few of you considered a stable. You know? you know, where's the perfect birthing room? Let's go to a barn. That would be awesome. You know, like there are weddings in barns, but there are some things you just don't do, right? You just don't have a baby in a barn. Jesus is born there in a stable. He's born among animals. You think about this. We were talking about this on Wednesday night. Well, we would never let this go on today. I mean, he, they, they wrapped him in swaddling cloths and they laid him in a feeding trough. You know how many moms right now are going, you know how many germs are in that thing? I mean, we would have so much sanitizer around, you know. Somebody vaccinate that kid, right? In a hurry. 
But the very fact that he was born there and placed in this manger points that he didn't come for the elite. He didn't come for those who had earned their way or who deserved it. He comes for those who are dirty, who know they're dirty, and who will admit their dirt and realize their need of him. Verse 9, the Bible here tells us that, that an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And there's this surprising, in some ways, emotion from them. It says that they were filled with great fear. It's surprising, but it's not surprising because this is actually what happens every time the glory of God shows up. When the glory of God shows up, we should be afraid. Because when the glory of God shows up, it reveals us for who we really are. It shows us all of our shortcomings and all of our sin and all of our failures. And, and I have to imagine that these shepherds, being a bunch of guys out in the field with a bunch of animals, probably aren't having a very holy conversation. I doubt very seriously that in the moment they're taking prayer requests, right? And the glory of God shows up, and they're filled with fear, and we can understand this. And here's, here's, I think, something that God showed me in the middle of this is that if we stop and we say Jesus came to show us God and that he came to live among men, if we stop there, then it ought to fill us with fear because the only thing that's happening at the end of that is it's, it's going to show us God and how we have rejected him and we're deserving of his wrath. And if he then comes and he lives among us, we think he's simply setting us up. He's simply, he's simply laying on the guilt so that when the day comes of execution, we will be without excuse. We will look and we will see just how sinful and godless we really were and how deserving we are of his wrath. They're filled with fear. This is why a self-sufficient church that does everything in its own strength is so dangerous. A church that never relies on the Spirit of God a church that never has the glory of God show up is a dangerous place to be. Because if the glory of God never shows up in a church, then the members there and the attenders there can simply go for years pretending. They can look around at one another and they can say, well, you know, I'm okay, I seem to be fitting in, I'm doing okay. And, you know, just like the shepherds in the field probably look at one another and don't really see a lot of difference between each other. In a church where the glory of God never shows up, we can continue on in our sin, unaware that we are deserving of wrath. And in a church where the glory of God never shows up, it would be very easy for people to just go right on out into eternity, unaware. But I want you to miss, I don't, I don't want you to miss the angel's message here. The angel shows up, and they are filled with great fear because the glory of God has appeared. But the angel says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. One of the great lessons of Christmas is that Jesus has come to show us God, and he's come to live among people. And there's not one of us here that is disqualified. The only thing that disqualifies us is if we don't ever see the glory of God and we remain content with who we are. 
And Jesus comes to, to show us God to live among men, but then thirdly is this. Jesus comes to make peace between God and man. See, this is the good news. If it only stopped at the first two, then we would be shaking in our boots, fearful for our lives. But Jesus comes to make peace between God and man. Jesus was born to drive out fear and to replace it with joy. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I would simply say to you, as much as I can connect one-to-one in this setting, if you've done anything to sin against God, you need a Savior. For a lot of people, the story stops at the baby Jesus. But the reality is Christmas is only the beginning. The manger would lead to misery. His cradle would lead to a cross. I want to read for you an excerpt from a blog from John MacArthur. It's kind of lengthy, but I think it's worth, uh, worth your hearing today. The Bible here says the important issue, or, or John MacArthur says here, the important issue of Christmas is not so much that Jesus came, but why he came. There was no salvation in his birth, nor did the sinless way he lived his life have any redemptive force of its own. His example, as flawless as it was, could not rescue men from their sins. Even his teaching, the greatest truths ever revealed to man, could not save us from our sins. There was a price to be paid for our sins. Someone had to die, and only Jesus could do it. Jesus came to earth, of course, to reveal God to mankind. He came to teach truth. He came to fulfill the law. He came to offer his kingdom. He came to show us how to live. He came to reveal God's love. He came to bring peace. He came to heal the sick. He came to minister to the needy. But all those reasons are incidental to his ultimate purpose. He could have done done them all without being born as a human. He could have simply appeared like the angel of the Lord often did in the Old Testament and accomplished everything in the list above without actually becoming a man. But he had one more reason for coming. He came to die. Here's a side of the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those soft little hands fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day stagger up a dusty heel to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. That tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus came to die. As wonderful as it is that we look at Jesus and we say, man, we know what God's like. If that's where it stops, then you and I are just like the shepherds in the field. We are trembling with fear. If he comes and he lives among us, but he never dies for us, we have no salvation. We simply have a a life that was lived in a way that we could never live up to. He never disobeyed God once. And we would look at him and we would say, how can I stand in, in that? His life would only condemn us. But the Bible here teaches that Jesus didn't come only to show us God, and he didn't come only to live among us as an example, but he came to die. 
Everyone knows John 3.16, but if you'll go one verse forward to John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It is his birth that we celebrate this weekend, but it is his death that we need. Upon delivering the news of a Savior, the choir cut loose. The Bible says there in verses 13 and 14 that suddenly there was with the angel a a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the greatest news anyone could ever receive and it certainly called for rejoicing, but not for everyone. And here's what I, I don't want you to miss. This is not universal good news. This is not universal peace on earth. This is peace on earth for those whom he is well pleased with. The obvious question that we should ask out of that is, well, how do you please God? How can can I please God? Hebrews 11, 6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that leads me to our second question of the sermon today. How do we respond? We now know why Jesus came, but how do we respond to this? Number one, trust him. Believe. Exercise faith. This is what we see in the passage in verses 15 and 16. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go see. Let's let's go to Bethlehem. I mean, I would love to be there in that moment to see just the, the excitement among the shepherds in that moment. A little bit of what just happened. Let's Let's go see. And the Bible goes on there to tell us that when they went, and they went to Bethlehem, that they found Mary and Joseph and the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, just as they had been told. They took God at his word. They believed God enough to seek him. Was there risk? Yeah, there was risk. I was thinking through, what kind of risk would there be here for for these shepherds? Well, shepherds already have a bad rap, right? They're they're responsible for sheep that are not even their own. They don't own these sheep. They're hired hands. So there's all sorts of risk. If if they go, I mean, what's going to happen to the sheep? I mean, if if we go and a predator comes in and, and, and kills these sheep, then it's on us and it comes out of our paycheck. If we if we go and they wander away. I mean, that's, that's, that's on us. We're going to have to pay for all these sheep. There was risk. There was also risk among the shepherds, I think. They probably looked at one another and said, but, but what if we're being punked right now? Like, like what, if, what if this is an elaborate hoax here and somebody's really got us and somebody's going to pop out in the end and they're going to have this camera on us and they're going to say, man, you guys are suckers. Don't get so far removed that you think that there were not real questions and real emotions and real carnal thoughts in this. It was a risk that they would go there and they would be embarrassed because it was all just 
made up. But they went anyway. There was sacrifice on their part. What would happen to those sheep? I don't know, but it was worth the risk. My question to you today is I say, how do we respond by trusting him? A couple of questions I have for you today is, what are you going to cling to instead of trusting God? What are you going to hold on to and say, I don't know, I just can't, I, I don't think I can let go of this to trust him. Because what if I let go of this and it winds up that it's, it's all a lie? Then I will have lost this and I will have been made a fool of. What, what are you going to hang on to? Is, are you sure it's worth it? And Jesus cautioned potential followers in his day to count the cost. He wanted them to have all the information up front. You better know, if you're thinking about following me, count the cost. He said to them, if anyone wants to follow after, come after me, then he must take up his cross and follow me, right? I'm not telling you today that trusting him will not have risk and it will not have sacrifice. But what I am telling you, the message of Christmas is those things won't matter once you follow him. It will be worth it. Second response to this is not just trust him, but speak of him. Talk about him. Verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And they get there and they find the baby and Joseph and Mary, and it's just like they've said, and they go, you won't believe it. There were these angels in the field and they told us all these things and they begin to just spill out, right? And this is why the Bible here tells us in verses 18 and 19 that some of the people around listening were going, what? And they wondered at these things, verse 18 says. But Mary listened to their testimony and verse 19 says she treasured them up in her heart. Now here's the deal. Over the next two days, most of us are going to be around friends and family members who don't know the Lord. And if you're here today as a Christ follower, you have ample opportunity to go into those settings and speak of the Christ. To speak of the fact that he came to show us God. He came to live among ordinary, common sinners like us. And he died so that we could be forgiven. You have that opportunity. And I want to challenge you to take those opportunities to maybe right now begin to pray, oh God, would you show me and give me those opportunities? Ask him to help you to recognize them when he puts them in front of you and ask him to give you the strength to trust him to actually speak up in the moment. Now, again, I don't want you to go in there deceived or deluded. The response may not be what you think it will be or it may not be what you hope it will be. Not everybody at your family dinner is going to be like Mary and say, this is wonderful. This is treasure to me. There will be some that will look at you and say, I don't know about that. There will be some that will call you names. They will ridicule you. They will mock you. They will, they will not want to sit next to you at the dinner. They will hope they don't draw your name for the gift exchange next year. But the Bible here teaches that those who have truly encountered the Christ of Christmas can't help but to speak of him. And then third is this. 
Live for him. Live for him. Verse 20, it gives us a detail that maybe we might overlook. We might just run right by it. But verse 20 says, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. See, the reality is these shepherds out in the field get this great news, go see, they talk of him, but then they return. They don't suddenly look for new careers. They don't suddenly enroll in seminary, you know. They just go back to their lives. They just go back to their job. They go back to the sheep. But there's a difference in the way they go back and do it. They're still going back to ordinary, disrespected lives, but they go back with this new perspective and this new purpose. Now they shepherd to the glory of God. What they had seen and heard made them grateful in the mundane. They went back, and I, I can't, I would imagine that probably going back, there's, there's you know, some people are, are just visionaries and dreamers, and, and they're, you know, cloud nine all the way coming back. I mean, can you believe what we saw? And then there's some that are like these detail, like, you know, I get, we got we to gotta get back to reality here. And there were some in the group that were, that were you know, <laughs> it was awesome. But I wonder if the sheep are still there. I wonder if predators came in, you know? And they go back, and, and it's, not like, it's not like one is better than the other. Like, if you're worried about the details, then, oh, man, you should just learn to trust God more. Or if you're this type of person and you're looking at this, it's not like if you're just always up here going, man, isn't God awesome? That you should worry about the details more because God's ordained work for you. In the middle of this, God says both of these things are right. We don't separate out our work from our worship. The Bible calls ordinary people to ordinary tasks and ordinary life to be done in extraordinary ways because of what he has done in Christmas. One of the commentators I was reading for this sermon said, those with whom God is well pleased include those who cl whose claim to fame may be nothing more than they wake up each day and pursue a living in service to God. So here's the reality for us today. For the next two days, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus came, that he was born as a baby. I pray today that you have seen that Jesus was born as a baby to show us God. I pray that you would see that not only was he, he come to, to show us God, but he, he came to live among us as ordinary people with, with all of our sins and all of our flaws. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Mark 10, 45 says that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many that he died for us. The baby that was born to show us God and live among us is the one who went to the cross and died. He was raised from the dead so that you and I could live. And that is the greatest gift we will ever receive this Christmas. Our response is we trust him, we take him at his word. We speak of him when we have the opportunity. and We live for him in the mundane of life. That church is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. 
Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for the gift that we have received in your son. Lord, that we would not make light of any of the elements of his coming. Lord, that we would treasure them. God, I pray now that you would take what I have preached and God, that you would God, cause it to sink deep into the hearts of your people. Lord, I pray a prayer similar to what Paul prayed to the Ephesians. Lord, would you open, would you open the eyes of our hearts? Lord, to see the truth and reality of Christmas, perhaps like we've never seen it before. And God, that you might change the way we not only see it, but the way that we live in response to it. God, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to reflect on what's been said and to respond appropriately. I often say that a sermon is not complete until you follow through with what you've heard God telling you to do. You finish the sermon here today. I don't know what that is. Just thinking through those points of response, if maybe there's somebody in your family or somebody you're going to encounter that you know is not a believer and you need to take the opportunity to, to speak of the Christ to them, maybe you want to use this as an opportunity just to pray. These, these steps up here, there is no altar anymore. The altar is finished at the cross. But if these steps can become a resource for you to come and kneel and just pray for that, then, then feel free to do so. If you're here today and, and you're not a believer, maybe you're here with family or, or with a friend, but today you've heard of why Jesus really came and maybe you understood at least those first two, but you've never trusted him as the one who died on your behalf, then today, if you would love to know how you can be saved, that you can receive the Savior who's born to you this day, then I would love to speak with you. I'll be here on the front row. There'll be people in a prayer room that are through the doors to my right and your left. They would love to just be able to pray with you. Whatever it is that God has spoken to you today that requires a step of obedience from you, this is an opportunity for you to follow through. Let's worship him as we respond. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.